0: Although I started my career worrying about the uh, difference between modern humans and Neanderthals in Europe, I owe my return to Neanderthals to my collaborators, um, Dolores Piperno, paleobotanist, and Amanda Henry, my former graduate student who's now heading a research initiative at the Max Planck that is devoted to the issue of the evolution of human diet. So they're very much uh, in this presentation. Um, Neanderthals, this is the old distribution area of Neanderthals with the easternmost site being Teshiktash, and then recently we've seen an expansion of the Neanderthal area, which actually the archaeologists always thought was there because the the industry associated with Neanderthals goes that far east, but the association of the, the extension of the actual fossils to include western Siberia. So Neanderthals are a Eurasian species, that never seems to have uh, conquered Africa, and who also inhabited the Near East, but intermittently with modern humans. And um, they are uh, somewhat different. They are uh, contemporary with early modern humans, but they are somewhat different in their anatomy. And there's an argument about what this difference is due to. Um, A very important paper by um, one of our conference organizers and uh, her collaborator argued that Neanderthals actually were not especially cold adapted. And um, in particular, they don't seem to have been culturally cold adapted. um, And yet they have these very stocky bodies that would seem to follow Bergman's rule, which argues that you're going to have a more globular body plan in a colder climate. Um, But at any rate, they had um, differently shaped crania, as you can see below and um, quite differently shaped bodies. But basically, they were more massive than we are, and they probably had uh, more body mass to feed, and thus higher caloric requirements. The question about Neanderthals, since they did uh, live at the same time as modern humans were emerging in Africa, and they also, for a long time, were thought to be the direct ancestors of the people in uh, in their geographic range exactly how human it's in terms of comparison to us. How human were they? This has varied over time as reflected in these different artistic uh, representations. This is Marcelin Boulle's version, where the Neanderthals can't even stand up straight. And then we have a vision from the uh, mid 20th century um, by um, Zaborian. And then finally, a French version of Neanderthals who look um, not. Uh, very different from us at all from the year 2000. So um, this is um, work by Steve Churchill and others, and also building on some of uh, the material in in Aiello and Wheeler, 2003, that um, Neanderthals um, had to, if they didn't have clothing, and there's no evidence that they did. So modern humans, in any case, even if they didn't have any clothes, um, were not so much less cold adapted than Neanderthals were, is the message. And Neanderthals also had greater surface area because of their more massive bodies. So they, they needed more calories than modern humans. And these are estimates um, in Steve Churchill's work of the average adult male Neanderthal's uh, caloric requirements per day and the average adult female's caloric requirements per day, which I think doesn't take into account the pregnant and lactating females that would have dominated, certainly, the population. So a nuclear family of uh, two parents and two kids would have required almost 15,000 calories a day. Where are they going to get those calories? Was it the same way that we do? Well, a lot of the stories about Neanderthals and a lot of the basis for reconstructing their diet is based on the idea that they were essentially entirely... um, based on meat. The problem is, where were they getting this diet? And is it really a good thing to eat a purely meat diet, which has very, very few carbohydrates? But if you take, take a big animal that a hunter finally man- manages to bring down, like an adult caribou, if it's in the uh, late summer, it's probably fat. And more than maybe 60% of its calories are in the form of adipose fat. If you catch it in February, it's none of that fat is going to be there, and the uh, food value goes way down. So a good condition caribou is going to give you maybe 120, 130,000 calories. But if it's the spring, you're going to get less than half that. So what Steve calculated is that if only males were doing the hunting, each man needs to bring home almost eight kilos of meat every day. And each hunter with a wife and two kids needs one fat or two lean caribou a week, which is, um, given ethnographic stories of hunter-gatherers, this is a highly improbable number. Um, Occasionally, there's going to be much more than that. But most of the time, there's going to be much less. What kind of evidence do we have that humans were actually doing this kind of carnivory? We know that Neanderthals were occasionally driving big animals off a cliff that they had wooden spears, but they also had a very occasionally hafted stone tip spears, but there's no evidence that they had projectile weapons. There is some evidence that they were beating out the carnivores, whether it's because they were hunting their prey or living in their caves is unclear. The European Neanderthals did hunt large primase animals. Most of these were not caribou, they were horses, bison, and red deer, who often live in smaller herds and you have less of these massive migrations going through. The other thing that Neanderthals did not do, and Mary Steiner has um, talked a great deal about this, is they didn't, for the most part, catch small, fast fast game. As far as we can tell, they didn't do much fishing. They didn't catch birds or rabbits, and they, uh, except, I should say, very late Neanderthals in Spain. Yet we persist in arguing that they ate more meat than cave bears. And this is largely based, as Margaret will say, will show on the stable isotope data. There are a lot of problems with arguing that Neanderthals ate more meat than cave bears. And this is the work of John Speth and Kate Spielman from a very important paper in 1983, basically pulling a lot of the anecdotal data and the hunter's data and the ethnographic data together. The problem with eating a diet that consists mostly of meat is that meat takes a lot of energy to digest, and eating it raises your metabolism, your thermal output, up to 30% rather than the 6 to 12% you get from eating carbohydrates and fat. It also leads to many other um, unfortunate outcomes, a negative nitrogen balance. You start excreting nitrogen, you deplete your protein reserves, you lose muscle. It also affects calcium absorption and depletes your fatty acids, which is not the direction you want to go in if you want to grow a big brain. So the calories can be adequate. But if you eat 80 to 90% of your calories from lean meat, and the meat would have been lean for a good third to half of the year, this can mimic starvation. What about the plant foods? And I'm going to talk a little bit about a new approach that uh, Amanda Henry and Dolores and I have worked on. And this is the microfossils that are uh, preserved in your dental calculus if you don't go to a dentist. That stuff that forms on your teeth and uh, hardens incorporates uh, microfossils from or potential microfossils from the food you eat. And people have known this for a while, but what they were looking for were phytoliths. And we don't eat too many foods that have these little silica grains that grow in leaves and stems, because we don't live on leaves and stems. We live on starches and meat and honey and so we need to know are the starch grains preserved and the answer that we came up with was starch grains are preserved in dental calculus for at least 200,000 years in every possible climate that we've looked at and starch grains can be uh, assigned to a taxon usually at least a plant type if not a and often a family and sometimes even a genus or species by the dimples which are the green arrow the hilum, which is the center around which the starch forms, the lamellae, which are the thin parallel lines that represent the formation of the starch, and then the fissure in the starch. And each, starch, each species has a very distinctive starch. And also the, the other characteristic is when you put them under cross-polarized light, as in the bottom picture, there's a very distinctive pattern of extinction crosses. So we studied plant microfossils on teeth and on the associated tools from a whole lot of sites in the old world. And I'll just go by this, but just so that you can see that it covers um, everything from 50 degrees north to 25 degrees north and then down to 28 degrees south in South Africa. And um, we have starch grains on a large number of of teeth from the sample. Just to summarize what we found, Uh, Grass seed starches the the surprise was that the starches of grass seeds and other probable of Tritesiae which are the wheat the barley and some other oat grass and other kinds of grasses Were the most common kind of starch These are common across all the samples from Belgium to South Africa Suggesting heavy use of large grains grass seeds through time. We also had some legume starches, but we also had a lot of starches that were consistent with plant underground storage organs. The other thing that was interesting about this data is that most of our samples had a large number of different starch types. So that SPI at the, uh, in Belgium, at the northern end of our range in Shanidar, who's the southernmost Neanderthal we looked at, each had almost 50 different types of plants on their teeth. The, did they cook? The question is, how did they eat these starches? Were they eating them raw? And we've argued that uh, these were some of Amanda's experiments with all kinds of starches showing what happens to them if you boil them, bake them, or parch them. And if you look at the boiled five minutes picture of barley, um, when we looked at the Shanidar Neanderthal, we found on its teeth, and this is the upper right picture, that it was very, very close to a... Five-minute boiling in water uh, picture, so we've argued that this is and we had several grains like this on this tooth We've argued that they were eating barley porridge basically they were cooking the barley in water We have yet to figure out it's a little bit like the fire problem We have this evidence arguing that they cooked it in water yet. We don't have any pots So how are they doing it? That's that's the next archaeological problem and um, at, with that, I pass uh, the, the uh, baton to Margaret, who's going to talk. The problem with this plant data, of course, is that it conflicts with, not only with the idea of the all-meat diet, but some of the evidence for the all-meat diet. So,
1: um, This is work that came out of uh, Peter Unger's lab, and it is based on a couple of papers. And I want to thank Peter for the, for the picture here. These are microware on Neanderthal tooth surfaces, and I would say in some, based on what Peter has also written, that it shows some plant eating. So these are just the the data from Neanderthal tooth surfaces, and what you have here are uh, some that are open step areas, some that are from mixed forest areas, and some that are from wooded areas. And what their results show, these are the same kind of surfaces that he was showing you on the Australopiths, what he showed is that at the top, where you have the more open step, he was concluding more meat. Less dietary diversity, I think, is what is significant for what, um, what Allison and I would like to say. And then in the middle, where you have a mixed uh, set of ecologies, you have less meat and more dietary diversity. And when you get to the wooded regions, you have much higher dietary diversity. Now, how do you get that kind of diversity when, in some of the areas in which we know Neanderthals lived, we don't seem to have, at least ecologically, much diversity for them to be picking anything from? So this is uh, work that it was done at Amud in uh, Israel. And today, the uh, Israeli Neanderthals are living in what's called an arano Turanian zone. And that is a zone that is extremely dry. Uh, it uh, has an area of remnant oaks. And what they have now is a, an area with, they have virtually no date palms in this area. They have a single wet season that's in the cold, and the oaks are as remnant, or in this area there are no oaks. What uh, my graduate student Chris Howlin and I did, and had recently published in the Journal of Human Evolution, is that if you can use the composition of oxygen to be able to get it at some ecological reconstructions, and so that is what we attempted to do. Now the way this works I'll just go over the method very briefly is that you have herbivore physiology that deals with its body water in very different ways. So if you take an animal like a gazelle that is obtaining all of its body water from leaves what you see is with high aridity you have a high composition of the heavy isotope so you have a high value of delta O18. If you take something like a goat that is an obligate drinker and it's getting its water from pools, when so is not as subject to the aridity signal, what you find is that you have a delta-O18 value in rain that is low when you have cold temperatures. So you can use these two different animals to get at two different aspects of ecology. You can use the one that eats leave to get at aridity, non-aridity. You can look at the goats to get at what temperature at which the rain fell. Because you know what temp- that is how the delta O18 works. So you can actually track what temperature things were. Not the exact temperature, but relative temperature. So, what we did is we took goat teeth and sectioned them down the goat tooth. Uh, one goat tooth covers a 12 month period, so you're actually having one annual cycle uh, per goat tooth if you're looking at either an M2 or an M3. And in this case, we had both. Uh, what you have is this is down at the margin, down here and up here. The way the teeth grow, this is the older, this is the younger. So you can actually track down the life of the tooth and a and, uh, period over a year. What we showed with the goats is given these curves like this, we definitely have uh, periods of cold rains with low delta O18. And you compare that with periods of warm rains uh, with uh, high delta O18. So you go cold, warm, cold. And then if you go to the next one, you got it again. okay, we also did gazelles. I won't show you those data. But with gazelles, you look at an aridity signal. The teeth only cover three months. So you're basically looking at one season. And some of them had, we looked at all second molars. And we saw that some second molars were actually mineralized during dry seasons. And some second molars were what we would call drier seasons. And some were formed during wetter seasons. Gazelle only have two birth seasons at times of a lot of rain, and so we know that if they're having births in two seasons, it probably has a high rain intake. So based on rain and cold and wet and rain and wetter and drier, we concluded that there was more rain and probably rain throughout the year. So unlike today's Israel, it has rain only once, and we tend to think of that as how Amud lived. Uh, That is not how they lived. And so, this is actually a site of Kafsa, which is not the site of a mud, but probably at the time Neanderthals lived there, it looked much more like this, which was a much wetter area. And we think that probably what are now remnant oaks um, may have been spread much wider, and other uh, nut like things, pistachios, perhaps even almonds, were also available to them. And that might, in fact, explain some of the complexity that you see in the tooth uh, data. But let's get to what really started this whole thing about uh, carnivory and Neanderthals. And I want to go over it just a little bit. Um, what we have here are three different sites. This is the work of Mike Richards, published in uh, most recently in JHE, but then with others in additional after that. And basically, well, the reason it was sorted on this is because you look at a delta uh, N15, and that's off the edge here. That's a signal of 15-14 in terms of two isotopes of nitrogen. And basically what you see is that the Neanderthals are always higher than this is, would be a, a mixed carnivore, but it was the only one in which had where I had them at all sites. Uh, wolves are the top carnivore in, in this area, but there was one wolf, so it wouldn't have done me very much good to compare it with that. So I plotted and I tried to get the same kind of animals everywhere. So basically here are the deer, and the Neanderthals are higher than the mixed carnivore, and so the idea was that they are actually top carnivores based on the delta N15 values. And it's something that's bothered me for quite a while, largely because of John Speth and the work that he and, and Spielman did. So what is the model that all that's based on? Why are we even expecting that kind of relationship? And this is the reason why we expect it is because there were large studies. This was actually my postdoc. You look at the nitrogen values up here, so just look at the blue. I'm not expecting you to see the numbers. All I want to say is that if you look at plants, the numbers are relatively low. The animals that feed on those plants are somewhat elevated by about 3. And you look at, uh, so this is a plant eater. You look at the wolf that's feeding on the deer that feeds on the rabbit, and it's at the highest end, so that is what a carnivore looks like. The other issue is the marine system versus the terrestrial system. And again, you start low with plankton and krill. You move up to the plankton eater. You finally get up to the toothed whales, and they are the highest in the system. So if you have a human that it looks like a toothed whale, then you say, okay, it's feeding on, on marine meat. The thing is where you plunk the humans in, and here you go, you plunk them in just based on comparing them with those animals and whether the animals sit, and so that's what we're I, started thinking about. The problem is that every time I did a trophic system, humans always look like carnivores. It doesn't matter what trophic system I do, and I've done a number of them over the years, they look like carnivores. So what we have here is Pecos Pueblo. They are agriculturalists. We know they are not top carnivores. We know that because they're, they're living people, so we know what they were doing. So if you were just to have them as Neanderthals, what you would have is you've got your grass feeders down here, And you've got a large field here feeding on them and all that, so you expect. But lo and behold, the other thing we have with these guys is we have the plants. We don't have those with the Neanderthals. And if you plot the plants, then you start seeing that some of these plants are of high delta O 15 too. The amaranth is plotting up there. The corn is plotting up there. The tubers are even plotting up there. So why is this? it 's because what they did the model, which I must admit I lived on for a long time, when we did that model, we were looking at animals that were feeding at were not selecting in terms of the portion of the plant that was of the highest nutritional value, which is exactly what humans do, and <clears throat> the other thing that humans do is probably digest differently, and they probably cook and so maybe there 's actu- actually uptake of more and i 'll just go through a quick one it 's not just that here, Great Basin people who are foragers, again, waterfowl fish, bighorn sheep, wolf, ah, we're obviously top carnivores, but you pot the plants, and it's not quite that simple anymore. So what do you have up here? You have the cattail, and you've got the tubers. They eat the tubers. They ate the pollen, everything off of it. So where are we? What I'd like to say is I think what Allison and I have put together it is quite unlikely that any Neanderthals lived by meat alone, and part of that is based on the rabbit starvation that Speth and Spielman put together in 1983. The other thing is that those big Neanderthal bodies would have required more kilograms that you could extract that way, but which you can easily extract from a plant, especially if you're cooking it. And then you have more Kcals required in more, the colder areas. They had no projectile weapons. The dental calculus shows us they were eating plants. I think the microwear is also showing us that they eat plants. And I would say that until we get some good nitrogen plant data, we don't know, but what, what you're getting that nitrogen value from is a nutrient-dense portion of a plant that only humans can select.